Today from the Global Lane, America in transition, on the road to soft totalitarianism. It's the infliction of economic pain to compel us to conform with left-wing ideology. President Trump's ban on critical race theory. They were teaching people to hate our country. Pitting Americans against one another, promoting victimization and encouraging envy. They have more than you do, so they must have somehow taken it from you. And the question that should be asked in the next presidential debate. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Protests and rioting in Portland, Oregon. Other major U.S. cities have also experienced demonstrations and violence. So what's the end game? Are these just some frustrated American young people demanding equality and justice? Or is something bigger at play here? Well, our next guest contends the United States is in the throes of what he says is a move towards soft totalitarianism. Author Rod Dreyer is senior editor of The American Conservative, and his latest book is Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, it's nice to have you with us. So let's begin with this idea of soft totalitarianism. First, what is it? Then explain why you think the United States is already moving in that direction. Well, we, there's a difference between soft totalitarianism and hard totalitarianism. The hard version is what we all think of as totalitarianism. It's George Orwell's 1984. It's the Soviet Union. It's the infliction of pain and terror on people to get them to conform. I don't think that's what we're facing. I don't think that's what's happening here. Rather, ours is going to be a more soft version where they use the infliction of economic pain and marginalization and shaming to force Christians out of the public square and to compel us to conform with left-wing ideology. Uh, and the fact that it's soft does not mean it is any less totalitarian. I know you quote Hannah uh, Arendt, who after World War II published the book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Now, at that time, she said loneliness is an everyday experience, not just for the elderly. So how has social media made us particularly young people lonely? And how is that fueling this rise of soft totalitarianism? Mm. Yeah, Hannah Arendt, uh, in trying to understand how Germany gave itself over to Nazi totalitarianism and Russia to Bolshevik totalitarianism, said that the sense of being lonely and socially alienated was the major precursor to totalitarianism. What social media has done is it has served as a sort of substitute for person-to-person -person contact. And it has made young people have extraordinary levels of depression, of, again, of alienation. And it has made them desperate for something to, to solve their problem of alienation and their anxiety. I think that this is opening them up to the acceptance of a false idol that will be totalitarian, that will tell them, we can take care of all your problems, we can fix it if you will only say yes to us. That's what happened in Russia, and that's what happened in Germany, and that's what's coming here. Boy, that, that is scary. Now, I know when we think of totalitarianism, and let's say the Russian Revolution, uh, which was really a communist one, but led to totalitarianism, we think of a violent overthrow, the murder of the Tsar and his family, of course, the murderous violence uh, ordered by Joseph Stalin. Now, we're seeing riots, violent protests in some American cities, but nothing like that. So how likely is it could become that, evolve into that type of violence here? Well, it could happen. In fact, some of the people I talked to for this book, uh, immigrants to the U.S. from communist countries, 
they say that they believe it will ultimately turn hard here because that's what the left will need to do. I think we have a long way to go before that. I think that rather we're going to see something develop in this country like the Chinese have today, the social credit system, where they monitor everything Chinese citizens do. They get all the data from their computers, from the internet and so forth, and they assign them a rating. The, the more socially positive you are from a communist point of view, the higher your rating, the more your privileges. The lower your social credit rating is, like if you go to church, you'll get a lower rating. The more uh, the more imprisoned you are in your home, and you can't send your kids to college, and so on and so forth. That's the sort of thing that I believe is coming here, that the left is going to be doing to us, and especially to Christians who are now seen as the chief obstacle to this world of progress and tolerance and anti-racism. And they already have the data. Most Americans don't realize this, but big corporations get tons and tons of data that we hand over to them ourselves through our use of computers, the Alexa, and smartphones. All it's going to take is a little bit more political will, and we're sunk. And, of course, we're seeing in this country uh, churches have been shut down. In Portland, mm -hmm. we saw at least uh, one Bible burned, churches attacked, vandalizer burned over the summer, mostly Catholic ones, I might add. Why are Christians and their churches being targeted? Because, again, we are seeing conservative Christians, not the progressive Christians who have already assimilated to the new order. Conservative Christians and their churches and institutions are seen as an obstacle to progress. If you stand against uh, LGBT rights, for example, if you stand against abortion rights, if you stand against critical race theory, you are a problem. Now, I should say that uh, all Christians ought to be against racism. We are. But critical race theory is something very different. It draws a line uh, between good and evil, between the races, and alienates the races and turns us against each other when we ought to be standing together. All these things are going to come down hard on Christian churches uh, who may not survive if they don't have deep confidence in their their mission, deep confidence in their Christian identity rooted in Scripture, and, and if they don't have the ability to suffer and to suffer well. This is the main lesson I got from talking to Christians in the Soviet, former Soviet Union and Soviet bloc who came through hard totalitarianism. They want American Christians to know, be ready to suffer. Can we turn the tide before soft totalitarianism seizes control? We'll have more with author Rod Dreyer in a few moments, and later, critical race theory and why it poses a danger to American society. More now with Rod Dreyer, author of the new book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, you mentioned how Christians can have liberal allies in this struggle. Now, conservative Christians on some occasions have actually been in agreement with the liberal ACLU on some of these issues, like, say, privacy. Mm -hmm so forth. So what did you learn about the conservative liberal alliance in some of the interviews you did for the book? Yeah, this was fascinating to me. When, when I was in Prague talking to uh, a family that had gone through uh, communism and the, the father is now dead, but he spent four years as a political prisoner for his Christian faith. They told me that in Prague and the Czech Republic in those days, 
there weren't enough Christians to matter. So Christians who were standing up to the communist government had to make alliances with uh, liberals and unbelievers. And they said these could be really important because, you know, they wanted everybody to be Christian, this family. But they said that, you know, there were lots of decent people who didn't share their faith, but who did share their commitment to freedom. In our situation, we need to make alliances with people like this. I'm thinking about people like Jordan Peterson, people like uh, Brett Weinstein and his wife Heather Hying, leftist atheists who are driven out of Evergreen University, but they are on the right side. And uh, they're not Christians, but they share our commitment to religious liberty and freedom of speech. It's important that we connect with these people. Yeah, that was told in, uh, at PragerU. I was a teen in high school when Alexander Zolchanitsyn uh, wrote the book Gulag Archipelago. It was released in English uh, in the mid-70s. And I was horrified by that when I read it. But I know, as many others, I was attracted to his thoughts about living in truth, not living by mm -hmm. lies. Now, we're living in a time now when we see social media fact-checking, Pinocchio's being awarded, Biden called Trump a liar, political lying is commonplace. And I know Yosef uh, Goebbels said if you, you tell a big lie or a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people eventually will believe it. In Orwell's mm -hmm. 1984, he called it doublespeak. So, to what extent is that happening in America today, and what effect is that having on our society? Well, one of the things Hannah Arendt said was a precursor for totalitarianism is people giving up a belief in truth, that truth can is out there, it's independent, and can be known. Rather, they give themselves over to wanting to believe whatever their ideology tells them is true. We're seeing this happen all the time. Uh, for example, the New York Times in its 1619 project, which uh, tries to reframe, that's their word, reframe the history of America to say it was all about slavery. We were founded as a slaveholding republic. This is simply not true. There have been leftist historians who said this is not true. Nobody's denying slavery, but they're saying that our country was not founded that way. But if people believe this lie from the New York Times, they will come to hate America because America will have been founded in sin, you know, in a, in a structure of sin and slavery. So this is a small thing, but it's actually not a small thing because this idea has spread to 5,000 schools. Oprah Winfrey and Lionsgate Studios have made a deal with the founder of the 1619 Project to make films about this. This is how people who don't have a particular uh, concern about truth, ordinary people, they'll come to believe this is, as the gospel. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this famous essay called Live Not By Lies. That's where I take the title of my book, in which on the eve of his expulsion from the Soviet Union in 1974, he told his followers, he said, look, we may not have the power to stand up to this totalitarian regime, but the one thing that we can do is refuse to say that something is true that we know is not true. Now, in our country, we have a situation where uh, we are being commanded by the system that's emerging to say things like a biological male is a woman if, if he claims he's a woman. Little things like that matter greatly because if we get into the situation where we are willing as individual believers to say, yes, it's true, just because we don't want trouble, then we're done for. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that we are no better than a herd of cattle if we do that. So I've written this book to try to wake Christians up to the nature of the threat and to inspire them using the stories of, and testimonies of Christians from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union to give us the courage we need to endure. 
And finally, we do have an election coming up. No kidding, right? You seem to believe the country's move towards socialism or totalitarianism is already in place. It really does not matter if Trump is elected or Biden's elected. Now, that's not very encouraging for Americans who love our way of life, the Constitution, especially the First and Second Amendments, free speech, religion, gun possession. Mm -hmm. How do we reverse this course? What can we do, Rod? I really don't think it can be reversed at this point. I'm sorry to say, I think we're living through the birth pangs of a cultural revolution. And the best thing Christians can do now is build networks within our churches and among churches to endure. I'm not saying that politics are unimportant. They are. I believe that the federal judiciary is going to be the last line of defense over the next two or three decades uh, for believing Christians. So it's important to vote. But we can't think that politics alone are going to solve it. I mean, if, if President Trump were a philosopher king, he couldn't stop a lot of this stuff. This sort of thing is marching through all the institutions. It's marching through churches. It's marching through universities, seminaries, corporations. And we Christians have got to be prepared for it. That's why I wrote the book. A lot to pray about, right? Absolutely. But let's have hope here, because so many of the people I talked to, the dissidents, did not imagine that in their lifetime communism would fall. They resisted it and were willing to suffer for it because it was the right thing to do, and it was the right thing to do to be faithful to Jesus Christ. We have to have that same attitude, hope for the best, but we also have to remember ours is a religion of martyrdom. Those who who suffered and even died for the faith, they received a crown of glory. That may well be our calling, and we need to accept it as believers. There's a lot of hope out there. I was standing in Berlin when the wall came down and never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. It happened. God did it. Well, the book is Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod Dreher, thank you for sharing your thought-provoking insights today. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thank you. Remember when moderator Chris Wallace asked President Trump about critical race theory during the first presidential debate? Wallace wanted to know why the president ended racial sensitivity training for federal workers. We were paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars to teach very bad ideas and, frankly, very sick ideas. And and really, they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to allow that to happen. We have to go back to the core values of this country. They were teaching people that our country is a horrible place, it's a racist place, and they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm not going to allow that to happen. Here to set us straight on critical race theory is professor of psychology and sociology, Anne Hendershot. Ms. Hendershot is director of the Veritas Center for Ethics in Public Life at the Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. She's author of the just-released book, The Politics of Envy. Professor Hendershot, good to have you here with us today. So tell us about critical race theory. It goes way beyond racial sensitivity. What are people teaching? (laughs) It has very little to do with sensitivity, I'll tell you that much. What that is doing is encouraging, well, for one thing, white guilt. But another thing, it's encouraging the envy um, that I see permeating society right now. I I see a, a huge increase in rhetoric surrounding envy, encouraging envy. And I think it's pretty evil. I mean, I think your listeners, Christians, know that it's a serious sin, that envy is one of the the seven deadly sins. And to hear politicians kind of promoting that and critical race theorists also promoting it um, to engender division and hatred and resentment. 
When you hear a politician like Mayor de Blasio in New York City say there's plenty of money in New York City, it's just in the wrong hands. He's implying that that's your money that they have and we need to take it back. That's envy. And it seems like it happens every election year, every election cycle. Now, critical race theory, the critics say it creates racial division, as you mentioned, perpetuates segregation, and the view that minorities are victims of a privileged major uh, majority. So what would Martin Luther King think about all this? After all, he gave his life fighting for integration and a color-neutral society. Right, and uh, content of our character. Yeah, those days are gone. Um, there is an, and I think that that's part of the reason they want to gin up this kind of hatred, because it they believe it will help them um, by confiscating more wealth and taking more from others. I mean, it's almost impossible for a Democrat to get elected today without promising to confiscate wealth from the rich. That's all they talk about, and critical race theory does also the same thing. But what politicians do and what critical race theorists do is encourage that kind of envy. They have more than you do, so they must have somehow taken it from you. Now, there's a, an ugly history of slavery, certainly, and we have to acknowledge that. But to say that there's systemic racism today is a mistake. So what needs to be done, actually, to promote unity here in America, rather than advancing views that divide us. There's so much that bind us together and so much that we can work on together instead of using a theory and teaching that theory, promulgating that theory to divide us is just a mistake. So, I mean, I think the shared values that we do have, I mean, everybody loves their families, loves their children, want the best for their children. That's what we have in common. And if we could focus on that instead of what divides us and how much more somebody has for another, and move away from that. I mean, right now we're in a really terrible place. I mean, that guillotine that was erected in front of the chair, uh, the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, that's a symbol for me. That's the French Revolution again. Um, I worry about that because this rhetoric is becoming ever more heated up. And I know the guillotine was just a model and everybody says, oh, don't make such a big deal of it. But I think we need to make a big deal of it because it shows very clearly the hatred that is being engendered by groups. I mean, there's a new magazine, Jacobin, that's been around for a couple of years, but that's from the French Revolution. You know, you kind of know all that. I mean, that's the French Revolution is not a model to aspire to. It's just not. And so to embrace that symbolism worries me. And, and he's not the only person that's a former disgruntled, envious em former employee of Amazon. The former CEO of Twitter just said that any CEO who doesn't embrace the Black Lives Matter or the social justice or critical race should be lined up and shot. And he said he would videotape it. He posted that on Twitter. He removed it, but Twitter didn't remove it. Kind of a double oh, yeah. standard by our uh, <laughs> social say. media companies. Okay, I'm sorry we're out of time. Professor Ann Hendershot, okay. author of the new book, The Politics of Envy, thank you so much for setting us straight today. Thank you. Thanks so much. So Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden finally admits he's not a fan of Supreme Court packing. Packing is increasing the number of justices on the court to gain political advantage. The current number is nine. And it's been that way since 1869. 
Biden's been pushed on the issue ever since he refused to answer the court-packing question in the first presidential debate. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you answer that because question? the question you is, the question is, the question is, you shut up, man? Listen. Just shut up, man. I don't want to get into that. But now, two weeks later, Biden needs to explain why he's not a fan of court packing. He says he wants to stay focused. Focused on what? Perhaps issues that won't cost him votes. It reminds me of Nancy Pelosi back in 2010 when she said this about Obamacare. We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it away from the fog of the controversy. I guess many politicians just don't want you to be informed. The attitude is, trust us, we know what's best for you, we've got this. You don't need to know the details, just stay focused on the bigger picture. But that's how we ended up with the Obamacare mess. The devil was in the details. Higher premiums, losing our doctors, paying a penalty if you opted out. So a fair question for Joe Biden is, if you are elected president and Congress sends you legislation increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court, would you sign the bill or veto it? Biden says that's a hypothetical question. He's more concerned about Republican court packing with the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Sorry, Mr. Biden, Judge Barrett's nomination is not court packing. They're not increasing the number of justices on the court, just filling a vacancy. And that is the constitutional duty of the president and U.S. Senate. It's of utmost importance now more than ever with a contentious election result expected less than three weeks from now. And folks, honestly, do you think the Democrats would do the same thing if they controlled the White House and Senate? Believe me, they wouldn't hesitate to do it. Meanwhile, recent polls show two-thirds of registered American voters oppose increasing the number of justices on the court. And two-thirds say there should be term limits for Supreme Court justices. In addition to term limits, maybe we should also consider enacting a law or a constitutional amendment permanently setting the number of justices at nine. That number has worked well for more than 150 years. I wonder what the presidential candidates think of those ideas. We're unlikely to find out before the election. Remember, first we have to vote. Just do it. Stay focused. Vote. Don't worry about issues like that, right? Well, folks, at a time when Amy Coney Barrett is likely to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court, I can't think of a better time for an open and vigorous discussion about the future of our third branch of government. It is warranted and needed before Election Day. Biden and Harris should not be allowed to dodge this court-packing issue. It's too important to the future of our democracy. And it should be front and center in the next presidential debate. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parler, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.